0: Welcome to The Liminalist, the podcast between, I'm Jason Horsley, this week talking to Bennett Freeman, who I spoke to some years back for The Liminalist. it was a very different time, it was a very different Jason, and it was a very different Bennett, and uh, I'm going to link to that original conversation in the show notes, because we refer to it, and uh, yeah, a lot of things have changed since then, and um, Bennett uh, is happy for people to... Here and experience that contrast, the shift in his awareness around, specifically around trauma and childhood and things that I was trying unsuccessfully to communicate to him at the time. I, I like to think mastered and demonstrated the model that I've modelled with my work is, is is using the world as the mirror model for self surgery. So the world's very big, whereas our own psychology. Well, I it's not that it's that small either, is it? But it's hidden from us. So we find that the areas in the world in the socio-political landscape that correspond with our own conditioning, then they can be very useful for guiding our hand when it comes to removing the implant.
1: Yeah, and two things come to my mind. One is that uh, with the sort of uh, thing about Plato in the cave, it's almost like, the the outside world, quote unquote, is the shadows on the wall of the cave, and if we want to turn around and go into the light, it actually is an inward, you know, not to not to be too spatial about it, but an inward journey where the real exploration can take place. That's what I'm feeling more and more all the time. Um, and in terms of this model, and in terms of this. Uh, quite gentle encouragement to people to to look inside. It's the for me the perfect uh, example of that was when we spoke previously, like five and a half years ago. I, I simply wasn't ready or in a position to do that. Even though, since I've listened, listened back to it multiple times, you're you're being very uh, generous. In listening to what it was I had to say while still kind of uh, gently insisting you know um, I think you should look at this I think you should look at this and despite multiple attempts to do that it just wasn't penetrating for some reason um, and I guess sometimes it takes um, a, a sort of seismic event in one's life before one can open choose to open oneself to those kinds of um, messages you know
0: Mm -hmm. well that's a good place to start because I haven't listened to it multiple times but obviously I've been aware of it because we've corresponded in recent months since you returned into my awareness reintroduced yourself but now that you're you 're just summing out that, I do recall I do recall, and i 've had a number of conversations of that kind, but I do recall without the specifics of of yeah of me seeing my con continuously through the conversation trying to get you to look at something else that I felt was underneath the things you were saying, so
1: would you like me to, to recap it for you? Or yeah,
0: I was going to say, yeah, tell, tell me what, what 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 you think happened then and what's changed since then, where you are now.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm working from my notes here. Um, so uh, we talked a little bit about uh, open letters, which one of which I'd written to Kunstler, which is how I discovered you. And then we sort of moved into my main area of interest which was the sort of meeting point of uh, anti-civilizational critique and wanting to escape and it, at the at the time when you realized okay that i was talking about escaping things in the world that's when you started to um say that you know you well I, the, the notes i've got here says that you talked eloquently and powerfully for several minutes painting a picture that brought together trauma the rift between body and a psyche, spirituality, the role of language. (laughs) And my response after listening to all of this was to say the following four quotes. None of that's happened. This is about trauma. None of that's happened to me. I've been very lucky and I haven't experienced any major traumas. I don't feel fragmented. I don't feel like there's any trauma from which I need to recover. And then I even, which I feel most cringy about is that i expressed sorrow that things had happened to you seemingly um which at this point i i don't think you would written vice a king so i and i certainly hadn't read it so it was m- more vague than than my current understanding but i basically sort of said i'm sorry that it's happened to you and even offered like if i can be of any help or something like this which clearly was like a, an attempt on my part to to keep distance and and keep the denial intact you then respond by saying the, mo- the most helpful thing that I could do would be to recognize my own fragmentation that's your second attempt mm-hmm. um, but you also indicated that you didn't want to, to intrude and you were being very delicate and then I sort of say oh well I welcome any theories or suggestions you might have which is perhaps uh, the traumatized self inside me wanting recognition and sort of having its chance to speak out, Um, but everything you said from the greater the trauma, the greater the amnesia, references to Reich's uh, armoring theory, which I was even familiar with at the time, uh, all of the things that you kept saying to reinforce your points, emotionally I wasn't hearing it, it all went over my head. Um, And then this is is the, the, the best quote of all, I understand that these things are negative but I don't feel traumatized by them I've escaped their effects and I, I don't think you could you could find uh, a more clearer statement of denial than that so it's as soon as soon as uh, I had my you know awakening and the amnesia slipped away Uh, after some pretty miserable weeks of of pain, the first thing I wanted to do was to reach out to you and I felt like it was the right thing to do, not only to apologize for such vociferous argument against you, even, I don't think I was impolite, but it was certainly, it must have been quite taxing and maybe even boring to to, to face that.
0: Well, let's add a a missing element, unless I totally misremembered, because you've you've skipped to the the next chapter or even the third act, possibly. Wasn't there a period after the podcast where you were being quite combative at the blog around the Hampstead child ritual abuse?
1: That was definitely dealt with. I don't... I don't know exactly. I don't have a clear memory of my actions, whether they were combative or not. Um, how you perceive them is obviously the most important thing anyway. I still feel that that was a strange one in that um, the, the mother and the stepfather, I think, were... Uh, prompting the children to, to say all those things. I, I haven't changed my mind about the facts of the case, but certainly the way in which I addressed uh, the subject in discourse may have been also uh, fueled by denial of, of my own uh, experiences. Um, and, that, and then The other ingredient there was Anne Diamond and you mentioned on the podca- podcast that you think you thought uh, that I was being insensitive by probing her and uh well since I've got back into your stuff I revisited all of there's quite a number all of the, the Anne Diamond recordings and reread uh Stickle Stick essays and things like this and um I think uh I think that I'm pretty much ready to concede that I was completely wrong about that, so yeah it's it's about the, the, me contacting you originally was to own up to my mistakes, to apologize for any um, any any upset that I may have caused, and to and to try to pick up the thread of okay, so what would have happened if I had responded, and that means to listen and that means to look at these ideas more deeply, and that 's what I 've been doing for about the last year.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, I definitely didn't mean to pile on the remorse or anything like that, I think because you're already you know, coming as clean as you can. I, I, I brought up the hamster thing, well, for two reasons. One, that although that podcast conversation, I, I might have found it somewhat difficult and somewhat frustrating, I certainly didn't. I don't recall feeling any kind of animosity towards you as a result. Whereas, uh, over the Hampstead thing, I remember that for me, that was if, if, if we had any kind of budding friendship, it ended over that discussion. Uh, and, and I definitely don't want this to frame this in a way that it, it's, it's challenging or acoustic, because I, I don't care, it's all past now. But as I recall, yeah, you were, you were, you were pretty cutting, you were just really dismissive of the whole thing and of me and just totally rejecting it and uh, so i so <clears throat> i bring i brought it up for that reason you know, as our personal interdynamics so our personal history but also because of how crucial i think the, the personal denial of trauma is to the denial of these realities in society how how, how inseparable that they are yeah so. Anyway, we don't have to linger on that. Uh, I just thought there probably is quite a bit of interstitial, you know, tissue that's also context uh, between that first conversation and your epiphany. But anyway, we can we can move on to your epiphany because obviously that that's the main thing. Like, you know, wh- what what did you discover? I mean, what did you go through that caused the change of Perception.
1: Well, I think it was uh, like many, many things. There's kind of some factors that start to uh, build up, um, build up weight on on the on the one side of the dam, as well as there being you know a tap in the right place on the other side of the dam. So I think that one of them is that my intellectual journey and i'm using your more or less your definition of it as being primarily concerned with language and reason and trying to sort things out through that had not led me as far as i wanted it, it got on me some places of course it, it does have some uses but i felt a lot of frustration with that and one thing which was talked about in the original podcast was how I'd lost a lot of friends on that journey. That continued and got worse um, because I think that I, well, some things are difficult for people to hear, and some things I guess I was too into, which made me not a very nice person to 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 know at certain times. Let's say. Second thing was that I had. Uh, significant spiritual awakening having spent about 35 years you know basically my entire life up until that point as a as a staunch atheist raised atheist and as soon as i was uh, old enough to be you know a young adult and stuff very very vocal about it Mm. um looks like me yeah um I just reached a point that was it, it hinged, this particular element hinged on two or three moments, and I suddenly realized that, well, I not only no longer believed in the materialist kind of uh, worldview that had been in some cases unthinkingly behind a lot of my other views, but I couldn't believe that I ever believed it. It was the big because, as I mentioned in our previous conversation a lot of the times um i've changed my mind on things and i've moved around and i wanted to ground myself in some kind of something which is what led me to pursue philosophy so vigorously but this was the biggest change this wasn't like going from being relatively favoring capitalism to being an anti-capitalist it's um this was this was huge not rather than I'm me, I'm the centre of my universe and, and and I'm and I'm atomized and you know, I have to fend from myself versus I'm part of this whole and I can really, really, really feel it. So that it wasn't like that that happened and then like soon after the full awakening of, of what happened to me came in, but it was I think it was an important part because once you open yourself in one regard, it becomes easier to open yourself in others, right? Mm -hmm. then in my personal life um, there were major problems with uh, my relationship which caused uh, a separation and so I was more or less living alone without much joy um, not wanting to think about almost anything Um, I I was actually spending about 10 hours a day playing a video game immersing myself in a virtual world and then I had a you know you could say chance or fated meeting with a particular individual and through a seemingly innocuous conversation there was a question asked and 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 when the question was asked suddenly there was this memory and the first thing I did was to kind of quickly squirrel it away because I sensed oh god that looks horrendous I, I can't deal with that right now. Um, so there was a, there was an emotional release at that point that it started peeking through, but then like it was as if I put my hand over the burst in the dam and slowed it to a trickle. Uh, after a short time, that person had to go away, and I was left on my own again. And left on my own, the dam burst, everything came out, and I ended up checking myself into my nearby hospital, on um, the day before Christmas Eve, the 23rd of December in um, 2019. And I've uh, been kind of picking up the pieces and then later beginning to sort of explore myself and and, and and work things out ever since.
0: What was the question?
1: Well, you know those games where it's like, "Have you have you ever and then you sort of answer yes or no whether you've done that particular thing someone said to me this person said to me have you ever had sex with uh, a member of the same sex and so as i said almost as soon as it emerged like a big hand came down and, and 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 held the held the full memory from coming out but my answer within the context of the game was yes but not voluntarily and and that was the truth beginning to come out. Was that um, a joke?
0: was it a joke game? Like yes, it, it was. A,
1: it was a joke game. Yeah.
0: Is it yes, but is that the game? You have to answer with yes, but or is it? No,
1: no I, I'm not familiar with that particular variation. But it was, okay. it was, it was, it was kind of jokey.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there is a game. Yeah, where you ask questions and you have to answer yes, but. So that sounds exactly like that. But obviously, it was a different context. Right. So. Well, we're right to the quicker things, aren't we? So, do you want to stay on the specifics or not? I don't mean you. I don't mean that you would have to recount all your experiences. I wouldn't. Ask. Oh, no, I you think. Do that. I think. It,
1: yeah, I think it's enough to know that. I mean, this is now. Well, we talk, we're talking a year and December, January, about a year and three months later uh maybe half of that the 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 second half of that i've spent opting not to explore it too much anymore right now i'm not ruling it out for the future but the first let's say um uh seven months of that i was trying to piece together what had happened to me and um I'm not sure of how, of how many events we're talking about, um, but I was uh, I was sexually abused, and I now realise that a lot of the strange behaviour that I exhibited, um, well, I can say you know for the rest of my life onwards was was. You know attributable in some way to that there was strange behavior as a child, a strange behavior as an adolescent, and then you know problems in my life as an as an adult I never really became aware of, and so it it it, it absolutely proved to your point that the 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 greater the trauma, the greater the the amnesia because for thirty for thirty two years, I had no memory of this event had been completely repressed from my consciousness. And, um, and I realized that it's because it's the kind of thing that it was, it's a circuit def- so it's a defense mechanism to stop the, the psyche from completely crumbling, I guess.
0: How far, how far back did the incidents go?
1: Well, that's difficult for me to piece together because, um, it was such a long time ago, um, but we're talking that that the one of which I have like the best sort of recall, and that's a strong—that's too strong a word anyway. It's like uh, uh, strain, <laughs> difficult to describe, fuzzy, Im- fuzzy images and 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 feelings. Uh, happened when I was seven years old. Hmm. And um, there's other sort of, shall we say, clues and things I rocks I could look under if I want to at another point in my life. Uh, at one point I was like, oh, I'm going to just lift up all the rocks and know everything and then, then I'll be free of it. But working with my therapists, I realized that I would just I wouldn't have been able to handle that. So there could be more you know there could be it could be other there could be other weird dimensions to it, and there could be um, even more reason for the whole thing to be kind of complicated about around my family's reaction because um there was a there was a period of my life a little while after that, so I guess I must have been like. Nine, ten, or eleven, something like that, where I found out from my mother I was attending a kind of scouts alternative called woodcraft Folk, which seems to be a a scouts equivalent, which instead of being rooted in Christianity and dib dob dob is kind of like almost like a pagan leaning thing and one of the things about vice of kings was m- making me think even if it's just etymologically what is the connection between the the organization that you mentioned in vice of kings That was something about woods
0: order of woodcraft chivalry I think. order of
1: woodcraft chivalry and this woodcraft folk and i asked my mum, how long did i go there for and she said probably about a year and i've got no memory of this at all i, I have a, Hearing the name makes me remember that I did go to it, but so there's these, you know, there's this still huge clouds of amnesia that uh, I don't know what to do with quite yet, and maybe I will just have a better, better life and a more, a more spiritual flourishing if I don't poke around in those piles. I don't know. So it's, what, it's it's very difficult to work with when the amnesia is so thick.
0: And what did you mean by your family's reaction? Do you mean when you were a child or more recently?
1: Well, as a child, they were unaware of it. And therefore... Uh, at least I assume they were unaware of it because they told me they were unaware of it. Um, and therefore the the part of the psyche that is sad about that because you know you it being a being of that age you want to be protected um that's complicated that's complicated in that sense and then uh more recently uh when i eventually decided i was going to tell them what happened to me that i'd you know, and and explain what what had been going on with me in the aftermath of remembering it, the reaction was very, very muted. And uh, that's something I've been talking to my therapist about, you know, and dealing with. But if there's more, then that means that both of those two periods of, shall we say, uh, parental inadequacy, perhaps is the right word, just, they become, they be, they become even more complex.
0: Yeah. And do, and do your memories, or you said just recall was too strong a word, but your impressions of what happened, uh, do they include identifying other participants?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing that I've, one thing that I've, uh, the, the two things that I can kind of know uh, most certainly is that uh, one of the people was a, uh, I, I guess in my memory, it's a much older boy, but to a seven-year-old, I don't know if a much older boy is like 15, 18, early 20s. And, and it's it 's so fuzzy i don 't really know, but that 's my kind of uh, sense of it and then, like uh, the really odd thing is that I have this kind of mental map of where the bi- of where the building was, where at least this strongest fuzzy memory is located, being a few doors away from my grandparents house where you know I guess my parents like left me there for the grandparents to look after and perhaps someone said hey is it okay if he comes out to play and then I ended up in this this house and when I described the the location of this house and these people and I even thought I had a surname in my mind which I won't say um she just seemed clueless about any of it she's like I don't know who lived there and I don't know this surname and so forth so it's you know it's it's difficult detective work but um as far as uh participants concerned i have been able to identify a a kind of an outline of one yeah you
0: know. visually you mean or, or i wouldn't it's not the kind of,
1: it, yeah i mean you know it's the kind of thing that maybe if i saw a photograph of this person at that time I could recognize them and it would like bring stuff back, but I can't. You can't locate
0: it. him in your family history is what I mean, or your child's no, history. right? no.
1: <clears throat>
0: and when you said she, you were talking about your grandmother, she didn't recognize any of the... No, my mum. Oh, your mum. Yeah, they're, both of those
1: grandparents are dead, unfortunately.
0: Right. Um, and have you, do you have siblings?
1: Yeah, I have a sister, a younger sister.
0: How much younger
1: Three years,
0: and did you tell her about this?
1: I did yeah,
0: and was her reaction muted also
1: it was a lot it was a lot better initially than with parents um, and I felt quite supported uh, emotionally for some time, um, but that's become complicated by the fact that um, well it's become complicated. And then there was a point when I was working through a self-therapy exercise of trying to build a kind of family tree of trauma. I approached her and wanted to know if she was wanting to have, was able or willing to have conversations with me about, you know, anything that she perceived had been happened to her and, you know, asking her if she felt that she had any trauma and she just didn't want to talk about it. So to me, that means there must be something there. Hmm. Because otherwise she would just, she would reassure me. She would think, no, there isn't. And, you know, I am very sorry to what happened to you. And I will or will not talk about it with you. You know, something like that. But uh, the the biggest complication in all of this so detective work is that the people I would ask about it are not people I've been close to for a long time. So it's it's a it's a big ask and it's a and it's an awkward thing to, to try and talk about. Maybe impossible.
2: Here is my story, my tale not so tall. Of the night they say I murdered the bell of the ball of only one thing I'm guilty and only one thing should have never let her go Every head turned as we walked through the door You could hardly hear the band play over the storm I was the beggar and she was the belle of the ball The reina of the old dance hall Back from the shadows the stranger appeared and asked me for her hand I couldn't refuse for he had brought her to me and I knew we would never be free
3: so I had me But well,
0: What's the time frame with reading Vice of Kings and your discoveries? How
1: closely? Uh, so I want I, I want to say like at most a month had passed after after the memory surfaced and pain was beginning to uh, stabilize a little bit and and go down and I wanted to do other things. Um, I wrote to you then looked at your website and tried to go through your back catalogue of articles you know everything that you'd written seemed interesting to me and then in your sidebar saw, saw this book that you know uh, it was exactly the kind of subject material that i wanted to look into and like many people that have commented on it it is an exceptionally difficult read for someone in my position, it was almost like, well, if I've had this uh, experience, the, me- the, mem- the amnesia and the memory and then the pain of dealing with it and I'm getting somewhere with it, it seems like it would be a good idea rather than a bad idea to read this book.
0: Hmm. And were there any obvious consequences
1: for reading it? well, I guess <clears throat> this this comes back to something that we were talking about before the willing the 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 willingness to believe other people and to believe that certain things are possible in the wider world is to a certain extent mediated by one's own inner uh, inner thoughts and so forth so having had the amnesia and then the memory and almost immediately made the decision to try to uh, contact you and say, you know, this uh, vindication for what you were saying, um, then anything else I'm I'm exposed to is like, okay, well, I'm going to be, I wouldn't say, Believing it until proven otherwise, but certainly nearer to that end of things and uh, still skeptical, still wanting to kind of see how any new piece of information fits with everything else uh, in in, in, the, in the internal world and the rational world and, and intuition and so forth. But one of the strongest things about the book is the amount of – I'm going to use the word evidence – um where you refer to uh statistics uh, produced by surveys of psychiatrists and and a lot of case studies that are provably true to build an overall picture and so you know i had no trouble accepting all of the book's main theses and you know agreeing with them and thinking to myself um that it's a very important book on the subject because it's I guess it's the the comprehensiveness of it and tying all these different things together which is another thing that helped versus you know encountering the Hampstead or Anne Diamond or anything like that in um you know in isolation so the one of the strongest things about your work is that it it zooms right out to try and capture as much as possible of, of, a, of a given theme, while also zooming into your own experience. And there's a lot of a lot of parallels, I would say, thematically in our experiences. Yeah, I'm,
0: well, I'm getting that. And well, you're talking about doing detective work, and that. well you weren't sure whether to do it or not and it was going to be hard anyway and uh, and as you you presume you know from reading Vice of Kings and from other things I didn't really do much detective work or any with my family not Catwell I had some support with a cousin I wouldn't say that got into detective work and I had some support from my sister and at least she was willing to hear it but I wouldn't say that she's been an ally in this i don't mind her hearing now i mean we have done a couple of podcasts together so i mean it's, it's you know depends on what you compare it to relative she's been willing but i would say that she's not really been ready or able mm. and certainly in terms of going to older family members who are still alive who might actually know something i I wouldn't say, I even really tried particularly, uh, I think one, one uncle, my father's brother, I let him know, I certainly he was aware of what I was doing, and, and uh, I don't know if you might have even noticed, but he commented at the blog at one point, when I was serialising Occult Yorkshire, oh, you've got that wrong about something really, really trivial around our grandfather. Um, so... I mean, it wasn't simply that, but that, among other things, made me very, very reluctant to even attempt to take that approach. So my detective work then is, you know, most of it's in the book, or probably, I mean, all of the major points, because the book is is an account of my of my attempt to get to the truth, and of course, well, perhaps not of course. But I haven't I mean that book's unfinished, really. You could say it's unfinished. In a literal sense I couldn't quite finish it. And funny enough, the the very last go-over was after a Devashana retreat. So before the Devashana retreat I thought, yeah, I managed to finish it. But then seven days and seven nights on that island in Finland, I've never come back not transformed. It's always a transformative experience. And so when I came back and then I went over it one last time before sending it to the publishers, I thought, "Fuck, it's not, it's not, it's not ready." But I just, I, I said, "Well, you know, a week ago I thought it was. I can't rewrite it now, anyway." So, so I just let it go. And um, the the crux of that is is that. I wasn't able to resolve something by writing the book in the way that I have with the other books because central to Vice of Kings is is the wound. It is it is about the original wound. And I'm I i can not help a trigger warning for my listeners, I can't help but know that my attention's going to my butthole when I'm saying this, because that was one of the big clues was this Raw, itchy, bleeding butthole that came out of nowhere—that's an original wound, uh, and in, in more than one way. I mean, that area of the body is so you know, archetypally and spiritually, it's the root. It's the very base, the survival area. Yeah. So, um, like yourself, in a different way. I reached a point where I couldn't keep turning over stones. It wasn't the same as you and from what you've expressed that I just thought I don't want to know or I, I think it would be better for me not to know. I just didn't know where, either where to find any more stones or how to get you know, a crowbar under the really big one, maybe both, Yeah, I was looking for smaller ones because I just I didn't know how to leverage that large one and I also accepted that there's a reason why if I can't turn over that that boulder of the original wound then uh, then I'll accept that I'm not committed to actual cognitive recall of these events as the means to becoming whole because I, I, I don't know, you know. Some people say you have to, and other people say you don't. I do. I do pretty much know that it's body memory that needs to be reintegrated, so it's not cognitive. But I also feel that with with the reintegration of affect or the re-experiencing of affect, so it, it you know the body is able to assimilate it and flush it out. I would guess, that anyway, that with that that there would be no more amnesia barriers, so those memories would naturally come. I don't, that's just a guess, but it's more than a guess to say that I, I'm sure I haven't really experienced the affect. Because I've, I've had have had recounted in Vice of Kings, I've had experiences while asleep but conscious awake in my mind of getting close to the affect and it being so terrifying that I woke myself up, so I know I've backed away from it. So that suggests to me that it's still there. It's possible it's getting worked out in my sleep. You know, I'm always the optimist that it could just be incrementally working itself out. But I don't think so. I, I, I for me, it's particularly what's particularly apparent is that I still have recrimination, hostility towards my mother. Because I feel that she is complicit in what happened to me in some way. And that, as we were, you were touching on before, and I was intentionally seeing if you would, the betrayal trauma of, of our caregivers and our protectors not protecting us, whether or not they knew or not. If they didn't know, it's because they didn't want to know. And that is it's the same kind of betrayal. Well, it's less obviously malevolent, but it's as it's damaging to the child's psyche, I think
1: yeah um yeah that's something I'm still kind of working through. It's like my main the main meat of my uh therapy and self therapy sessions at the moment is working out exactly how I feel about all of that that element of things just in general, not even just the the betrayal but the sort of um you know the relationship, how I how I view my parents. Um, I think uh, because even though it was written before, I read it second, and when I came across Prisoner of Infinity, that uh, relate to trauma, and there's this, there's a lot more of a kind of. Um, sort of spiritual slash uh, philosophical feel to some of the some of the sort of academic work which you bring in my mind right now is going completely blank on recalling anything in particular and I don't have the book in this building to to refer to but um, I've got large large sections of that highlighted up um, stuff that I regularly reread to remind myself of things and I think that there' there're points that I never encountered anywhere else, uh, even in all the books that i 've been reading as part of my recovery, so there was some something special about that particular those those explorations within you know um, that that context which uh, it 's almost like I read that book like putting to side. Um, a lot of the stuff that was specifically to do with Whitney Strieber, because I felt like that was the that was the sort of uh, husk around some flesh on the inside, and the revelations that stood out to me I remember certain things about his history and these these miss, missing periods and being somehow coincidentally in the same place as different people but the the sort of conclusions and things that you teased out uh, as general points were just as valuable to me as the as the things in in vice of kings but it's it's incredible how i just have this like total mental block now just trying to recall it and this happens to me sometimes i have to bear in mind that this too is a symptom of something that sometimes uh it's just not possible to hold all these things in one's brain at the same time.
0: Sure, sure. Well, that's a dead one definition of trauma, or like they could say the body. Well that's a bit paradoxical because it, because we can't hold it in in, in awareness, it, it, the body holds on to it. Um, so, but yeah, I think there's a general principle there, and when you're talking about trying to get to grips with stuff mentally. Um, that's not going to work with trauma, because that's actually you know our reliance on our mind to try and calibrate and configure ex- experiences is is a traumatic defense mechanism in itself. Um, and I'm <clears throat> I'm wondering, or I was wondering, before I started that sentence, how much I th- I have a feeling in our first conversation correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the things I was saying to you was, Bennett, you're, you're trying to work out the solution when you haven't fully mapped the problem. Was that in there? Because, I mean, I say that a lot. Not in so, so, ma-
1: not in so many words, but yeah, you, you, when I started talking about how I really wanted the, to escape, um, and I think that's something I still feel, but have a clear idea of what it is that I'm trying to escape, you made the point of, you know, what. I think more or less you confronted me with saying, "What makes you think that you'll be, if you manage to, you know, get an enclave going, right. um, without the, the the tendrils of the, the Leviathan touching it, what makes you think that everything's going to be resolved?" Again, yeah. I again I just hand waved. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. And that you wouldn 't recreate the very conditions that you 've escaped from mm. right, so yeah, well that's similar, um, but I mentioned it now, and I 'm aware that we've moved very quickly away from the parental complicity and neglect, so you might want to be aware of that, that maybe neither of us want to stay too close to that, but um I, I mentioned this other thing, more general thing, because my impression of you since we've become re-equated is you're still quite, and somebody could say this about me too, or you could, uh, quite focused on kind of working out the problems of the world. I don't know if anyone would say that to me. Maybe they might. I mean, I'm 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 trying to do it in a physical sense of actually you know, create this community life for myself and others but that that 's come about in a very non intellectual way, I would say, so my impression of you is you 're still like you take notes quite a bit and you ask questions and things that you 're still and this isn 't meant as a criticism just as a commentary you're, you're still um, that 's still a way for you to um negotiate with overwhelming affect is by by cognitively mapping things and seeing trying to constantly um, map map the landscape of course I just wrote a book called Maps of Health so obviously I do this too uh, as a way to move forward um, and you know, maybe it'll work, uh, but it may also be uh, an a, a way to to just not sit in the in the affect and the feelings just as Right now, as I said, we, because I felt something moving up emotionally when I was talking about both of our respective caregivers. That's a heartbreak. Like we're both carrying deep, deep heartbreak. I would say the deepest kind there is, which is when you, I won't say your, but when because I don't know your personal history, but when one's own mother doesn't protect one, the original you know, life giver, doesn't care enough to protect us from the most terrible harm. It, it, it's, a double, it's a double trauma, because it's something that's done to us that's physically devastating, but then emotionally and energetically the, the absolute isolation and abandonment. Anyway, I don't want to overanalyze it, um, I, I haven't resolved it was the point, like I can't I can't, I don't know how to perceive my mother, I mean she's dead so I don't even have a relationship with her, but I actually don't know how to think about my mother, because part of me remembers her as this good friend who I loved deeply and another part now remembers her as somebody who, who, see I can't even finish it, I don't know what, betrayed, abandoned, uh, abused even, although I don't necessarily think that's true. But uh, yeah, so so that it's very hard to because the thing about our parents is that they're with them. We're an extension of them, so it's not just about having good relations with them. It's how fully can we accept who we are unconditionally, and, and be ourselves, re- with the full awareness that we belong with these ancestors. We can't separate ourselves. they they're actually with us. Part of us. So if we're if we're um, opposed to or feeling recriminatory towards our parents, then we're divided internally. I'd say.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. Um... I think it's too current and I feel too numb to say much about particular feelings towards individuals. I think the the sort of thing that came to my mind that I think is close to something I can say is that even if the worst they'd done was just to be boomers who were you know, not willfully, but sort of carelessly neglectful of what, of where I was, of what was happening to me, and uh, they'd been too focused on politics, which they both were. Um, that's, that still is uh, the result of their choices, and I think that it's um, it's not unfair of me to think that there's something there that needs to be answered for in some way uh, because because responsibility is important and yeah um, this ties in with um, something that my therapist asked me about the muted reaction I had, she said, she said uh, do they believe you and the first thing I realized is that I didn't know the answer to that question but the two possible answers are that either they do believe me in which case their muted reaction is appalling and that they don't feel any particular need to do anything to help me or repair anything or they don't believe me which is even worse so it's it's um it's a it's a very difficult thing to confront and i guess I'm now aware of having said that, that the same could be true of anyone encountering um, accounts, whether on, on the internet or a newspaper or whatever, of other people saying this is what happened to them and facing those two those same two choices, believe or, or, or disbelieve. And um, we come back full circle to, my initial reaction to Anne Diamond, and yeah, I feel remorse about that. And uh, that's, I guess, is the the whole purpose of sort of how, if there's any good that can come out of trauma, it's that we can learn to empathise with with other people because we've suffered something and we felt that we would have wanted to have compassion. Therefore, we realise that it's a good thing to lend it to others
0: well yes and even our defense against trauma is a shutting down of empathy starting with our our own affect because empathy is effective it's in the body so yeah one of the symptoms of trauma is, is the loss of empathy but by the same token if we if we if we're willing to go into and re-experience our trauma to some degree then we're awakening our empathic faculties. So, I think it's, it's the whole human energy field and I mean at a certain level it's almost academic like who did what to who because we're all suffering the consequences from it and I think in also in that context. Um, it isn't as simple, perhaps, as believe or not believe. I mean, even th- that, on that spectrum, as I'm constantly reminding myself and anyone who'll listen, not believing something isn't the same as disbelieving. So even on the belief spectrum, mm-hmm. there's believe, disbelieve, and don't know. Right? Choosing mm-hmm. not to believe anything. That, that's a, the spectrum of a, of a sane, a healthy mind with a fragmented mind, and this comes back to to my mother, because I don't believe my mother was consciously complicit. I believe, you know, the last conversation I had with her before she went into a coma was, "Do you have a secret? Do you have a secret?" And and you know I've got it on. I recorded it even with her permission, um, and I'm convinced that she didn't know what it was because she was open to the possibility, and she. Even, was exploring things, and she even did blurt something out that might relate to her secret didn 't relate to me however um, so so in her case and possibly in the case of your parents also it 's not as simple as believing or not believing or being complicit or not complicit it 's actually not it could actually be not not being unable to think about it as soon as it comes up. there's a dissociation is happening.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think because because of the length of uh, amnesia, uh, my parents are in their seventies, and so and they're boomers, and they're both very comfortable, you know, financially, and in, in in a sort of sense of cozy existence that is, shall we say, relatively unfazed by what's going out uh, going on in the outside world. The idea that something like that happened so long ago, they don't want to think about it at all, I I believe, because it would necessitate them sort of unraveling so much of what they've believed to be true and kept them feeling safe and secure their whole lives, probably. So I think you're right. I think it is an an inability. So on that basis, does that affect... Uh, willingness or ability to forgive, to accept, to square it away as being part of our own being um, these are things that I don't yet know but like, as I said it's the main focus of my ongoing explorations on a personal level so wait and see she was
0: You said, because I, I was struck by you said that they're, they're very more interested in politics than they were in you. Apparently they're not interested in politics now, however, so they're not interested in the world. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that that caught my attention. It could mean a number of things. But when you said that you weren't sure how much detective work you you to do, um, I presume that it was both... The question the possibility of talking to people asking questions and the possibility of just researching as much as possible about your, your own personal background
1: yeah well e- even during the amnesia about what happened to me um i came across a very concerning uh, revelation about my father he was a senior politician and um when i was trying to map a kind of globalist octopus i I was following different people. Uh, one of whom, uh, an Irishman called Peter Sutherland, hit my radar. He was at one uh, at one point in time. He was at the, uh, simultaneously chairman of Goldman Sachs, BP, the London School of Economics, and various other things. I, uh, it's difficult. I'm not so focused on these facts anymore. Um, it relates to what Simon was saying yesterday but um so in in following the the thread of this guy i found that there was an event that included my father and then i sort of looked more more precisely at the event and st- there was something about it that particularly worried me uh, to do with the awarding of a medal um which was a, a clear you know, to to an outside perspective, a, a clear kind of initiation uh, level uh, event. Uh, the medal itself bears a Maltese cross and all the rest. Mm-hmm. And so I spoke to my friend, who was the sort of person I knew that kn- knew most about Freemasonry, and uh, and he said, well, if you if you go to to do the detective work on this one, you've got to be prepared to go all the way. And I never have,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but. So the level of complicity that my father had with all kinds of you know the sort of nefarious octopus that I've spent the last fifteen years or so um, on and off studying um, is, is unclear to me. And so if I combine that 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 would be need to be revealed in much greater detail anyway if I was to sort of do detective work in this particular regard as it, as it pertains to abuse in my, in my childhood. And, uh, it just seems like, you know, you don't want to end up, well, I don't want to end up, you know, finding something that is so horrifying that it totally disables me and, uh, knocks me for six, so I can't stay connected to the human energy field.
0: I'm not sure you can. You can. Well, you could. I suppose you could cast yourself out, but I don't. I don't think that it would happen out of out of fear or, or recoil like that. But putting that aside for a second, I'm wondering about what you said there. Uh, that having done my own detective work and found out some pretty damning evidence, no smoking guns really, um, none of it was particularly disturbing to me, on the contrary, I found it very very helpful because I was making sense of affect as I tried to sum up in Vice of Kings. So the echo of unbearable affect, I'm I'm at least creating or generating an echo and so I can follow the echo back to the source. Uh, So it was providing relief. So I don't know what you think that you would find out by that kind, I can see how you wouldn't want to go too quickly into the memories and and release trauma because that definitely can be destabilizing and I suppose there could be a correlation, certainly it could trigger finding something out. On, on, in the more big picture way, could trigger an internal thing. That's true, but I can't, I can't imagine what sort of actual information you would find that would itself be destabilizing because it's, 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 it's mostly hidden anyway. Like, of course, I could map the movements of these groups and agendas and deduce, mm. right, what was going on on the surface. But obviously, I, I didn't end up with, with the photographs of, of the. The pink ballet parties, parties with my grandfather there in, you know, Knickerbockers or whatever it would have been, that would have really, you know, completely d- dissolved all of my illusions. So it's, I still have the buffer that I'm, you know, I'm just gathering data here.
1: Yeah, I'm listening to my body right now, and there's a, a feeling in my chest. Which you know uh, is indicative of such a profound fear and i'm i I'm, me- I'm remembering certain things that happened to me as an adult where I felt this similar feeling, like when um one evening I inadvertently met Tony Blair, and on another occasion, John Prescott and how, just
0: to interrupt though, how does one inadvertently meet the prime minister or the ex prime minister
1: so there was a, a i think it was euro euro 2002 football tournament and i'd gone my dad had invited me to go to the um Houses of Parliament where in the basement they've got a a TV room and watch the game so I knew I was going to watch the game in the House of Parliament and in the middle of the game Tony Blair dropped in for about 15 or 20 minutes
0: Sounds like a Whitley Streber screen memory (laughs) the the basement of the Houses of Parliament sorry I don't mean to be laughing No
1: no it's okay Um, and uh, yeah i just on these occasions meeting these these guys um it's not like meeting a celebrity because like you know i've i've met so-called celebrities at other times and felt that whole kind of uh starstruck thing that you can feel this was different i actually it was the inverse i i felt like there was nothing to be there was no um I guess because there was zero admiration and I didn't mm-hmm. think of them as having earned anything, like the, the entertainers that had entertained me, I just felt this, this feeling in my body of like, I guess it's it's something uh, something primeval that is a response to something. I mean, I could call it evil or, or what, but I'm, I'm feeling that now and I think that in in looking at the links between high-ranking politicians and, like, dark shit going on, um, you know, sort of... At one point, I had a big stab into looking into, you know, the, all the stuff that surrounded the do Dutroux um, stuff in Belgium, and that scared the living crap out of me. So to have that kind of detective work... But uncovering stuff that might relate to things in one's own life is something I don't feel I have the courage for, quite like you do. So it's this bodily feeling of just don't look, you won't like what you'll find.
0: Sure. Well, it sounds normal and sane to me. It makes me wonder what's wrong with me. I mean, you, you, you say courage, but to have to, for it to be courage, one has to be afraid. And I, I was never afraid of doing it. I felt compelled to do it. So, I don't know if. I, you know, I think I do show courage in many things I do, but I don't. The things that people identify as courage in me usually aren't. Like me going off to Morocco with no money to just live on the streets. That would take a lot of courage for some people. For me, it was. Well, I don't know, I mean, it was a compulsion. And, and, and a number of other things, uh, likewise. So. But staying on this subject, um, I'm wondering if it has to do with our traumatic imprinting. I didn't want to say programming there, because then of course we're getting into, well, potentially even darker waters, but also potentially sort of polluted conspiratainment waters, though I don't think there's anything contentious about MKUltra. Uh, or anything, I mean it's, it's, it's been reformatted as entertainment needless to say, but anyway this thing about being programmed, this is something that came up very recently at a Dave Oshana event because of me, I mean he spent an, a disproportionate amount of time referring to me and even talking about Prisoner Infinity which he's never done on an event before, uh, And but he specifically zeroed in on something that I had expressed concern about a number of years ago, which is that how could I know that part of my traumatic um, programming or handling if there was such um, wasn't to disseminate information, wasn't to be a kind of honeypot, the way that I've revealed Whitley Streber to be. I don't think Whitley Streeper consciously. Uh, sometimes he's consciously deceiving, but I don't think in a general sense. I don't think he's consciously serving the agendas that I think he's serving. Um, so, you know, what what about me? And the other thing related was, uh, you know, what kind of controls might have been put inside of me that would cause me to self-destruct if I started getting too tr- close to the truth or too far from my programmed role. Now i would just leave that there for a second because I don't have got any more to say but the reason I brought it up was the difference between, you were underscoring the difference between you and I, like for me I can go into all this stuff but you can't. Well it It may well have to do not just with our different character and maybe that our characters are largely configured through through these kind of experiences I don't know, but also anyway with the kind the, the kind of experiences that formed us and that therefore inform our quest for the truth.
1: yeah, it may also be related to the question of the fact that my parents are both still alive and all the people that I was talking about are still alive and I fear reprisal from them if I do look into something that I'm not meant to look into.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and even if, I mean, there are different kinds of reprisal because even being condemned and shunned by your parents, even at a conscious level, you might not think that that would be too terrible, but at a deeper level, it could be. Uh, So even without going into, I mean, reprisals of course could infer something a lot more serious and and political even, Uh, and I think that's a a reasonable thing, although whether them being alive or dead, how much difference it would make, I don't know. I often wonder, I have wondered how it was I avoided any reprisals, because the only visible reprisals that that I saw were my Wikipedia page got taken down which is a pretty small price to pay, I think, for all the things that I've revealed. Unless they weren't considered that important, which of course is possible.
1: Yeah, I, I, I figure that various people have ways of measuring ripples, and they have different levels about what they're willing to tolerate, and when something gets too much, they realize that they need to step in. And um, I don't know, It's uh, this relates to the whole question of courage and lines and martyrdom and everything that we were talking about yesterday. And uh, one of the reasons why I decided I wanted to go ahead with this under my own name and stop dancing about with Weird aliases uh, using uh, you know foreign sounding names and things like this was because I feel and this relates to something else that was said yesterday to thine own self be true and to try to um, to make peace with myself by doing so and to whatever degree it 's interesting or thought provoking to other people then that's, I guess, doing some, some good, I hope, in some way. I, I, I certainly think it's interesting in a sort of objective sense that a person can have an amnesia that lasts 32 years, go on a podcast with someone that they otherwise have reasonable affinity with, uh, speak from a position of you know, total denial, and then, uh, five years later, um, go back and um, you know try to try to write the whole thing. So that's what yeah. I'm doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can see how for yourself it would be good, but also I think you're also saying that it would be good for other people to hear a useful and a certain kind of meaning, sort of lived live reality show, kind of appeal. I mean, to, reduce it to that but substance the substance of the lived change of heart um, I wanted to say also that because I think it's more than the trivial point that to thine own self be true not many people know this they might know it comes from Hamlet but it's actually a line in the mouth if I won't remember his name but the, the villain in Hamlet the guy who's constantly manipulating Hamlet and yeah, I
1: can't him. remember his name either. Yeah.
0: Yeah. the the, the equivalent of Iago in from Othello in Hamlet. So, to, and it's weaponized truth because he's only telling Hamlet to thine own self be true to trick him into doing something stupid. And because, as we know, Hamlet does well, he does nothing, doesn't he? But anyway, um, it doesn't end well, and. Uh, this question also came up yesterday in the men's group, you know, to that one can only be as true to one's own self as one knows oneself, also to the mm. definition of enlightenment, knowing yourself and being yourself, well it's actually circular, I was going to say one can, can't be oneself if one doesn't know oneself, but I'd say one can't know oneself if one isn't being oneself also, it's a mutually reinforcing movement as a life force that does require courage and honesty and integrity. And as long as we are fragmented, which is related to the programming, being programmed and being colonised, then we can't be true to ourselves, we can, we can certainly try and work towards it. But, and this also comes to the multiple name thing, because I did that too, as you know, Including weird foreign sounding ones that people couldn't pronounce, AOS, KFOS. And my wife pointed it out to me, I guess during that period that we met, or maybe, I don't remember, but fairly early on, that that's quite characteristic of victims of extreme trauma or, or abuse, that they're always changing their identity. David Bowie comes to mind, an early role model. So that's a way to to avoid this impossibility of being true to ourselves when we're fragmented. Oh, I'll just make up a new self, a new identity, and I'll just keep. And my brother did this too, as well. He didn't change his name, but he was always changing his top hat anyway, and it was always about self invention. So, so. So we might think that we're being true to ourselves, like I thought I was being true to myself when I wrote this View and Homo serpens turned out I was, I was um, being controlled by cultural propaganda, social and cultural propaganda that I'd imbibed and that was now Generating its own narratives internally, and and then I was replicating those narratives. So it's 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 a it's a really tough. It's a real conundrum to be in. Yeah, you know, how how to be honest enough to acknowledge our dishonesty, how to be true enough to acknowledge that we're we're being untrue. Um, and. Bringing, bringing back to what seems to be the, the, the main thing here which is whether to turn over stones that might be left unturned, whether to wake up sleeping dogs or not. Uh, I think we're programmed in two ways, one is flight and the other is fight. One is we'll just run away from the trauma. Dissociate and, and maybe even never remember it as you, you know five years ago, but still, you've got this tendency to back away if not run away. And the other is we'll, we'll just run headlock it, headlong into it in a way that is self destructive, so or at least self sabotaging.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, in one of my uh, guises, going back, uh, let's say, a couple of years from now this is uh before before the amnesia en- ended but in the sort of uh, the height of my um, feeling that i should do something i guess i became a kind of cultural culture warrior of a sort and uh was on twitter and reddit and places like that trying to bring things to people's attention about Epstein and uh, you know all these all these kinds of topics, um, so that people would see their, this uh, this image they have of what society and government and authority is sort of unraveling, and and also to try to I felt I felt motivated to try to slow down or stop some of these um, drives towards transhumanism and some other things uh, that were going on, uh, transgender and whatnot. You know, I, I was f- the very sort of walking epitome of a cultural warrior, culture warrior, and uh, I just find, found myself uh, at a certain point just thinking this is not... This is not doing me any good. There's nothing I can point to in my life that this is having a positive effect on me, my interactions, my body, anything. So then I guess maybe deciding to take a big step away from that created the space for the amnesia to end because there was spare Hmm. energy with which to do that bit of very important processing.
0: Right, so it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition with what I was doing with writing Occult Yorkshire which I think did help me to dispel some of the amnesia, but of course I wasn't, I wasn't on Twitter, I wasn't on Reddit, I was at RI, rigorous intuition, so it wasn't non-public, but i wasn 't trying to blow the whistle on anything or wake anyone up. I was, <laughs> I, I was working on a mystery uh, and <clears throat> It felt necessary and vital, and it was good to get the support and feedback at rigorous intuition wasn 't much, but it was enough uh, and that you know that was the genesis of' called Yoshi, which became Vice of Kings. so I'm just thinking out loud here, but that there seems to be a right balance between the fight and the flight, uh, which is neither. So it's not really on the same spectrum at all. I guess it's not in the reptile brain at all, uh, but exploring in a way that is not solipsistic. you know it's not navel-gazing and it's not trapped in the past. It is communicating it is serving the community but it is not focused on on that or on changing anything except one's own relationship to one's past, which is the body that is wrote about in Prisoner Infinity, the love's body, the body of organic knowledge is you know, where the trauma is essentially. Okay. It is carrying this load and, and it is waiting like an abandoned Horse in a field to be groomed and cared for and you know, set free. So I think it's yeah, the I, right. Sorry, I, know I just kind of cut you off there, but I, I just finished one thought. I think it's the right context. It's the right, it's doing it in the right context of sharing and communicating is, is really key there.
1: Yeah, and, and in the act of sharing if there's a good audi- good group that you're sharing with, there's support there too. It's a, it's a I, I like to think that what is most special about the overall dynamic of Maps of Hell is that, I mean, I, it seems like you'd done most of the writing before the campaign began, and the campaign was for the publishing and there may have been some changes and additions and stuff in the the later stages, but the feeling that you had all this stuff to share and that people were open to it and were saying to you, we, not just by the giving of, of money through PayPal, but signaling that they want it to be shared and that maybe it's the first stage for them in... Unlocking something in them that they may le- they may later want to share as well. And I think that because of the length of the book and because of the complexity of the ideas and everything else like that, it's going to be, you know, a little while yet before we reach the, the full, um, we can see the full effect of the book. But uh, again, um, on a personal level, it's, it's not like I came on your show to just... Um, by sing, it's just, sing the praises it, of your it, books, but it's sold
0: out it, now as well, so <laughs> don't, don't bother plugging it, almost. Uh,
1: but you know, in the effect that it had on me, like i i uh, as I, as I kind of hinted at in the, in the, um, or maybe I said it explicitly in the review that I, that I wrote of, of the book. I was aware of a lot of the contradictions between, you know. Espousing relatively anti civilizational anti society um, and increasingly spiritual views with having my main source of inspiration and entertainment coming from this this universe of fakery and and everything else and something I've been grappling with lately is that, is there a kind of purity to be found within it? Like, can you sort of take like 98% of uh, of, of the output and put it in the category of like, this is, is to be avoided because it's not good for reasons that, you know, are apparent to anyone who's read Maps of Hell. And then maybe there's some of it, like I'm thinking the later works of Terence Malick, which are kind of rooted in a kind of Christian panentheism, or, you know, um, there was another one that came to my mind, uh, maybe um, some of the work of uh, Krzysztof Kishlovsky that is speaking truth and is there as an example. That's what I've been grappling with since because I've dropped my consumption to almost nothing but there's a there's a part of me that wants to go back and revisit this other stuff and maybe to find uh, new examples of it that are coming out. But what is that? Is that, is that a genuinely good uh, urge that I want to connect with goodness as expressed by good people in good ways that just coincidentally happens to be using a medium which is mostly tarnished? Or is that still like the the remnants of a pathology the sort of whispering voices in the ear of the recovering alcoholic that say you're strong enough now just just take a sip
3: Bad. So they're putting me on the assembly line, putting plastic leaves on the plaster palm And ship them off to Los Angeles, It weren't art, but it weren't wrong and Some say it's pathetic when you give up your aesthetic for a job in the factory But all that exhibiting is just too damned inhibiting for a beer, drinking regular guys
0: Remarkable you brought this question up, Bennett. Because after you left the men's meet yesterday, uh, I ended up making a case just for just this. In fact, I, I was recommending Fistful of Dollars. I say, Oh, you've got to watch Fistful of Dollars because, and then I explain why well the context was I just got my Clint Eastwood poncho in my 50s you know I had to wait for my 50s so I would really just given to my, my that childhood fantasy of, of pretending to be the man with no name obviously I'm not but I'm wearing it it's a lovely poncho and uh there's still this resonance in my psyche for that archetype, for the, for those images, for the themes. So anyway, so I was making the case, rightly or wrongly, similar to what I was saying before you left about knowledge, how we, we take it in, we imbibe the nutrients, and then we shit out the rest, and maybe the shit will be good fertilizer. But in the meantime, we've embodied whatever what was, what, what ever was good in that knowledge or that entertainment or even that propaganda potentially uh, and what is good by definition is what the body can absorb into itself to replenish itself, the rest of it is shit. So so my view is more subtle or nuanced than, than your view. I don't believe that we have the discernment to say well this is good art and that's not or and we can't say, well, this filmmaker is really working from a pure good place and they're a good person, unless we know them personally. And even then, maybe not. But I think there's something. But it would take a long time to know. I would say, like you're saying, about sixteen months of hours, it's going to take a while to see what the effects of that work are and how positive they are. I'm, I'm sure about Prisoner Infinity. Enough times past, I have a sense of. What I did there and I'm I'm happy with it for example or seen or not seen um, in the same way the opposite that I know with Lucid View and the Aeolus Capers mm, did that wrong uh, and then with Fistful of Dollars well you know I first saw that in my teens and I've pretty much purged out my Clint Eastwood obsession but obviously not so much that I didn't want to buy a poncho and wear it right but it just feels innocent to me now like I know that yeah, you know, How that story ended—the Clint Eastwood thing—it didn't end well, and even the Spaghetti Western, particularly. But there's something that I extracted from that particular, those particular films and those stories that somehow is coming true for me now. And it's almost like it's almost like it's a time loop that it's starting to feel like the reason I resonated with those films and that image of the. The man with no name is a solitary man of of true character, but he has to find his truth and his goodness. He starts out not good as a mercenary, but he becomes a hero despite himself. He's not like Shane with the white hat, he's just, you know, he's just unreal. There's just nothing real about it. This is just an ordinary, not an ordinary man, a very um, uh, capable man who's essentially a killer who, in the right circumstances, he sees that there's, um, you know, where that way of being, what it leads to, which is the victimisation of innocence, and so then he changes his his relationship, and he becomes a good. In the context of greater evil, he he, he turns into goodness. Anyway, I'm just just uh, you know kind of free associating that, but there's something now in my current in my 50s that I feel well I did that did sow some sort of seed of goodness that's flowering now I mean it's a bit too soon to say I might I might as you just said I might just be falling again right so no I can like, it's not like I'm going to start watching the spaghetti westerns again and it's not like I'm going to become a gunfighter you know it's not a literal thing it's some essence some essence s- yeah
1: I would say it would be harder for me to go the rest of my life not watching the good the bad and the ugly again than it would be to investigate the the dark heart of my father's political soul. Um there's there are several moments I mean it seems like you and I have en- enough shared fondness for this for this movie like to the point where if I was relatively settled somewhere and had a cat I would most likely call them Tuco as well. Um, There are are several moments in the movie that don't just feel to me innocent, but they feel almost um, sort of magic. Hmm. And the the, the scene of Tuco running Hmm. gleefully around the the graveyard looking for the the grave, thinking he's he's found... Around everything, and I'm totally unaware of the, the, the trick has already play, been played on him, and there's no bullets in his pistol and, and everything. It, it's, there's, there's a lot of moral lessons learned by pretty much all the main characters, except for Clint Eastwood's character, that is almost there as the sort of inadvertent teacher. Um, but no,
0: anyway. no, I have to disagree. that. you need to read Secret Life movies. He's the one who has the real transformation, but it's so subtle. It's so subtle. But it's the it's the kitten when he, when he when you see him with the kitten stroking the cat, and he even gives the kitten a name. So he's bonding with the cat, and then and then it's when he gives the poncho to the dying soldier, and that's yeah, there's a turning point. Uh, which he becomes, the uh, same in Fistful of Dollars, and Fistful of Dollars is much more obvious because he sacrifices himself to save the family. But in Good and it's super subtle. And I, I you know, I, maybe I'm imagining. He,
1: he gives the trench coat to the soldier and takes the poncho,
0: yeah. He takes the poncho, yeah. yeah. So then he becomes who he is at that point, which is the man with no name, of course.
1: Yeah, I mean, his final act to to, you know, he was he was clearly always intending to come back and and shoot the rope spoiler of that um but i i see the i see the director is putting the fabric of society much more in the camera lens through the characters than any individual thing and maybe this is something i could look at again with uh, future viewings but i think going back to my original point it's that Yeah, we're not going to become gunslingers. Um, it doesn't affect my view of the history of the Civil War. It it doesn't really seem to change me in any way to watch this film. And I do think it is a masterpiece. And I, I think that, although there are many, many great things about it, I think the script might be the most interesting thing. And the conversation between Tuco and his brother and everything does... Mm-hmm. It's it's a highly moral film, mm-hmm. even if, you know, the three characters scarcely have any codified morality between them. Tuco doesn't. It's it's him versus the world. Same with Angel Eyes. And uh, whatever view you have of Clint Eastwood, he is not exactly a sort of paragon of virtue. But there, there, there's a lot of commentary in it. And... Um, same with those other directors that I mentioned, I just wonder if there's if there's goodness there, if it's creeping out Um, and I think what I was getting at as well is not so much about the the motivations of the filmmakers, like yeah, we can't be sure about Terrence Malick one way or the other Um, less so Kishlovsky because he's dead but um, it's more about the the effect on us and -hmm. whether it takes us away from our bodies and whether it connects us with other people and and gives us positive effect or not.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting you mentioned that point with Tuca running through the graveyard because that's one that my wife singled out as well. We went to see the movie at, at the theatre in Hope before before COVID closed all that down a, a year or two ago. And uh, I think we, we were both brought to tears by that moment, the combination of the music and the camera and, and this, this very... Uh, touching character but it's it's it is a mystery I mean there's alchemy actually that's that's the term I use in my in my essay on it in Secret Life of Movies uh, there's a kind of alchemy in that movie and to me the essence of it and this is where I'd say this this is the transmission this is what we're looking for so of course you can find the transmission in everything even in a movie uh, the what makes *The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly*—I wouldn't, I won't say a masterpiece, because that's such a culturally sanctioned word—but um, a carrier of transmission is that it, its aspirations are quite low, and it's 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 so well disguised. It's not it's not uh, telegraphing its greatness or its pretensions. It's very rough and rude and raw. It's a pulpy western. But the actual, as I don't have to tell you, the, what's actually informing it, the sensitivity and the artistry uh, and the aesthetic and, and the compassion is truly remarkable. So for me it's that combination, it's that combination of something very dirty and rough and raw and patched together bad dubbing and all these other things and obviously the violence and uh, you know, the sort of... Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, not buffoonish but it's almost vaudevillian some of the humour uh, with this with much subtler thing. So it's like the Philosopher's Stone in the dirt, it's that idea which actually fits with the, the stone at the end, the stone with no name on it, that's the Philosopher's Stone. Mm. It's, hi- it's hidden, you know? That. So, So you can't be sure and maybe this is the key, that the filmmakers knew. Like, uh, I'll send you my piece on it, The Secret Life of Movies, because it's got the PDF. Um, yeah, I have no idea. If I, I'm pretty sure that what I found in that movie was not put there intentionally. It was put there by God.
1: Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, raising a point that I, I discuss a lot Uh, With uh, someone close to me, which is about where that comes from, and you can be, you can look at it in a metaphysical metaphysical sense. In which sense? In which case? You know, calling it God or the idiosphere or some sort of channeling, they they look like they're competing theories. But the important thing is that it's here, and you know, how is its presence felt? where did the reverberations go and what are the results? That's the interesting part for me. And it, hmm. it makes one um, super conscious, bordering on vigilant about what one chooses to do and say hmm. um, to the point where, you know, I don't know anymore whether to rec- recommend movies to people. I don't know whether to tell them that if they watch the entire three colours trilogy back to back. That during the last five minutes they'll experience something profoundly spiritual, because of just how quite incredible of an ending to a movie that is, and all mm. the other link, all the other all the other connections between those movies.
0: Mm. I, I did, by the way. I, I would concur with you about those three movies.
1: Yeah. Um, so I don't know whether to do that or not, and I. I have a shrinking number of people that I could do that with anyway. But um, for my own personal consumption, I mean, uh, unless I can think of a really good reason, I expect that sometime in the next few years, I'll go back to the good, the bad, and the ugly, and maybe some of the other classics, while whilst still mostly being um, guarded and skeptical and, and wanting to, you know, it's, it's like a it's like a locked door that I have the key to and I can open and like, okay, there's, there's a knock at the door. Who's there? It's Robin Plansky. You can't come in. I'm not going to watch any of your films anymore. Uh, there's a knock at the door. It's Terrence Malick. What's your latest movie about? It's about a conscientious objector sentenced to death um, living under the Third Reich. Okay, sounds like it could be interesting. The life of a martyr. And in fact, I think it's, one of his best films so i i am glad that i watched that but uh, it's it's a it's a tricky decision about when you're looking just through this narrow narrow spy hole in a in a secure door whether or not to open it or not
0: sure
1: because it's just, it's, just, it's your soul that's on the inside
0: and, and your body and your nervous system yeah so I mean I, I, don't, I don't drink any alcohol and my liver's pretty sensitive, so even if I have half a glass of wine, I, last time I did many years ago I think I I regretted it, I certainly felt it, the effects of it, um, but A that's just me, that doesn't mean I think that no one can have a glass of wine and, and not be harmed by it. Um, And I'm not sure what B is. I shouldn't start with A anymore because my mind doesn't work that way these days. Um, But um, what was I going to say? Yeah, there's there's such a large spectrum between being an alcoholic. This is what I come from that line, and having a glass of wine with lunch once a week or something or whatever. Take it to the other extreme. You know, that's a very wide spectrum, and yet the truth that that alcohol destroys lives remains unchanged and so we can apply that to the, the products of superculture also um, the things that they're actually creating I mean alcohol existed long before the alcohol industry and the alcoholic epidemic or whatever we're going to call it um, as a natural product well I can't quite say that about movies but stories are a natural extension. Of, of human community and even imagery, I mean theatre certainly, who who could say when theatre first began, right? there wouldn't be any way to trace that back to the original, because children do kinds of theatre, so yeah, I mean it's, there's two things that are very obvious, one is what's the source, so if it's Hollywood chances are it's you know, it's, it's, it's propaganda from the inception on, so it's like you're drinking alcohol it's going to be full of pesticides probably maybe not worth it my spaghetti westerns could be different because they came out of Italy Um, that's the number one where's it coming from and number two how does my nervous system feel during and after and that I think we need uh, much more sensitivity or I do than we currently have to really gauge Because I think even a movie like alcohol can make us feel good, but it it could still be polluting the liver or making it work too hard. We might not notice the cost of the good feelings. A movie that really raises our spirits, how is it doing it? How legitimately is it doing it? Because if it's it's just manipulating uh, our responses in some way, then that is a kind of drug. That's kind of how drugs work, you know? as opposed to legitimately. See, I'm not even sure that it's the transmission again, isn't it? You know, is it that that pure touch of the uh, the numinous there, or is it the counterfeit?
1: Yeah, and it, that the opposite for the the challenging end of it. So not the things that are designed to um, lift your spirits or that end up lifting your spirits, but the things that are meant to say, right, have a look at this. This is this is um, difficult to watch and, and even harder to think about. And, uh, you know, you, you may well have a strong adverse reaction to this, but I want to say something. I'm thinking of... Um, the last temptation of Christ and Silence as a as a two film package by Scorsese, and then I'm thinking of um, Mother by Aronofsky, which is where I think that he decided to stop bandying about and try to sort of be a a filmmaker that was seeding uh, prophetic messages in his films, and just said, well, I'm just going to then make make a film that is itself like a like a prophecy and. Uh,
0: we're on and, dangerous ground here, Bennett. Dangerous <laughs> ground. I hated that film with a passion. That would be. Yeah, see, so. Yeah, we shouldn't talk about specifics. It was all right. Was good to ban the and Kozlaski, kind of but. Yeah.
1: yeah. But, yeah, just uh, in a general sense, I see these as messages that make one question things in a spiritual way and do not supply the answers let you arrive at whatever answer you want to have about them and i think that that is something that makes me think there is something there that is part of a good transmission that isn't just propaganda or subterfuge i don't know it's an unresolved question
0: yeah yeah well that's essentially why I find it easier just not to drink alcohol and currently not even watch movies but even when I was still watching them to feel guilty about it not that but to 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 not allow any sort of concession to my thesis there. So like I still love Fight Club in a, in a way but I just i can 't trust my own responses there because I discovered mm. too too much about it, and it, and the background to to not feel that i I was tricked. My own responses tricked me, and that 's a really profound thing to take on board I and mean, we're coming back to this cultural socio cultural and cultural programming. We have program responses, and we don 't realize it. And then, and then we encounter cultural artifacts or people or relationships that trigger those pre-programmed responses. And unless we realise that you know we've been primed, we feel we're being true to our own selves by having these responses. So yeah, I think there's no substitute for stripping, just stripping away. As much as possible, the cultural props, and aids and orientations that we have, little by little, of course. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe this is back to my poncho. You know, I figure if I'm not going to watch Good, the Bad, and the Ugly ever again, I can I can order a poncho online, and wear it. No one will ever know. A few people will get the reference and feel like I'm living you know, that reality, but as I say I'm not going to carry a fake or a real gun around, I'm going to learn to farm. So it's, it's a perfectly appropriate thing to wear, it's just a little, it's a memento, it's like a trophy of my time in the trenches of the Hollywood uh, forgetting chamber, maybe, you know, I'm just using, trying to use that as an example of a way to retain the elixir of a toxic culture, so that maybe it's a homopath, homeopathic, you know, extraction that we've got, but at the very least it's a reminder, you know, <laughs> okay, that they're not to go, you know, that's been there, done that, there's really nothing for me in that world, except, you know, the memories, and I suppose, I don't know, you know, maybe people who are redeemed from hell, maybe they do have kind of Bittersweet memories of how it's possible yeah, like a reminder of you know where we've come from and what we've been through. I think there is something in that, like you' saying about trauma, it provides a, like a deep, a rich context for how far we've come.
1: Yeah, I think this kind of um, reminds me a little bit of something I thought about when I was listening to your most recent walking log. And it's something I don't know if I disagree with or not yet. You were talking about individuals being reference points on the human energy field, but the the individuality of them, I think in some way, Not being the most important thing about them, and I was wondering, because my sort of precise uh, spiritual orientation and, if you want to say, beliefs are very much a work in progress and quite nebulous at the moment. But I I feel sometimes that that uh, creation is a bit like a play as well as as well as there's a, a kind of feel element of it there's there's like a play um and that may be part of the the telos or the, the purpose of that play is that there's a kind of highest level of if you like intelligence which we could call god or many other things that wants to one thing it can't do is to to know what subjective experience feels like so there's an ongoing creation timeless in which we as individuals experience that and that we are sort of connected to God in some ways or there's there's some there's like a two two-way communication possible between it and therefore it's actually vitally important what we do in terms of our individuality, uh, individuality and, and how we express that and that actually is reinforced I think by something you said yesterday about, or was it before that, about how um, you know, our first uh, duty of care is to our bodies since, so that we can protect our ability to be able to continue our role in the play and uh, to try to put good more and more goodness into the play. That's something that I was just reminded of.
0: Play of life. Well I think and I feel like this what sort of came up yesterday, but I didn't get to say it. it was something that the the guy from Oz said about how really our purpose in life is to serve the human energy field, let's say. But we can't do that until we fully served ourselves. I'm paraphrasing. There's a paradox in there, so that each individual is is a. It's not like they're indispensable because obviously people die, and so then they would get replaced. But if they were replaced, they'd be replaced not by the same individual, but by the same quality. The same. It's back to the the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is about. The personal and the archetypal; those three characters are, are very richly created characters as human beings. They're very human, well, angel Eye, Well, actually, Túrcio <laughs> is actually kind of ordinary human, but still, they they, they have human qualities. Let's say, um, and they're very compelling characters. Uh, but they're they're standing in for archetypes: good, bad, and ugly. Uh, and and it. It maps this dynamic, like the story unfolds. The story is of one character, so he has three sides. He has a good side, he has a bad side, he has an ugly side. And it's, uh, he only becomes fully good when he's integrated the bad and liberated the ugly, essentially. That's my thesis in a nutshell. That's when Blondie you know, becomes the man with no name. And uh, Anyway, uh, so they're, they're all equally disp- indispensable as archetypal energies Um, so but it's what makes them what gives them their meaning and purpose is is as ingredients in a larger in a larger mix so you you can't dispense with the individual but the individual itself has no real meaning except in the context of the collective so i mean it's kind of like a dog chasing its tail trying to trying to think about it, I mean, I, the Christian thing is, I think, well, it's a trinity, isn't it, also, <laughs> it's not the good, bad and the ugly, but God, the Father, and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, that is what you were talking about a moment ago, is, is the, the absolute having an experience of subjectivity through the incarnation. And then, well, and the, the next...
1: the f- and the field or the wave is the Holy Spirit, yeah.
0: Yeah, and the body of Christ, the church, not any institution, needless to say, but what, what, would, what might truly represent the church, which would be the human energy field, as it becomes fully aligned with life, which is, you know, Christ represents life, the Son, uh, then, then God. The Father has a subjective point of view, not just in the Son, but in the Holy Spirit, in the whole, in the Church, the multitude, the whole community, many, many points of view. Then God is fully landed in, in the, in, in, the, in the physical, and human beings finally have a purpose and an orientation in life, which again is is about being fully oneself, fully individual, fully embodied. in in service and in harmony with a collective, recognizing that we're inseparable from a collective. Somehow, you know, it's a a paradox of the mind, but experientially, well, I suppose this is back, it's like the the Morris Berman series I did, you know, the nature of existence is paradox. Mm.
1: Because
0: bodies, unlike minds, can't isolate themselves from the continuum of life. We, we are as interconnected as cells in our own body, but because we're on the inside of the organism of the earth, so to speak, uh, we, we can't see it. We're, we're able to have the, the view of being a separate cell because we don't perceive the, the sea of life force that we're moving in. Well, I, I don't. I think Dave does, and I think mm. I think we probably do. Actually, it's something Dave's been saying. We do perceive it, but we don't uh, cognate it. We, you know, we don't notice actually what's happening.
1: Yeah. I'm just drawing completely blank. I I find it interesting what you're saying, and I I don't think of any, I haven't had anything that comes up to to add on to that. Mm. Well, it, might be, it might be a good place to leave it.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's fine. I, I, I was just thinking how far we've come in two hours. I mean, who would have thought we'd end up with the good, the bad and the ugly and the incarnation of God into the human community <laughs> and somehow those two things being related.
1: Yeah. It's it's I it, it's been uh tremendously cathartic and enjoyable to take part in and I think I'll be I'll be interested to listen back as well to see, you know, to to, to relive it all.
0: You mean just today. Yeah. Tremendously cathartic. Gosh, well, you'll have yeah. to tell me about that on another occasion then or in an email because I didn't, I didn't notice any cathartic.
1: Yeah, I but, mean, there's, there were points where I'm really locked up and feel like, okay, steal yourself. You know, this, this is what needs to be done. This is the good work. This is the truth. You came here to speak. And then now, maybe it's that the the weight of what we were getting into in the first half uh, necessitated some kind of a release and depressurization um, by by going uh, almost inevitably into uh, movies a little bit has has helped but uh, some combination of of it all has definitely been uh, uh, invigorating. Ooh.
0: So it was, a, it was a bit of a rocky ride
1: then. Yeah, at times. I mean, I I kind of had expected it that that I might have these reactions in my body, so it wasn't unexpected. But um, yeah, it was. There were there were moments where it was, let's say, um, tense. Mm. But I think that's good.
0: So, how do you feel about people hearing this and then listening to the original one out of curiosity? Good. All right, good. Well, I guess we'll let them do that then. That is the end of this week's LIMA What follows now is a very important message from your host. Began thinking more about the play wall and how if this movement continues, it will come more and more formally, formal, formally the form to uh, only share material with those who've fully crossed over, being those who've consulted one-to-one with me, recorded a face-to-face conversation with me for the podcast, or participated in at least one affinity group, or a Devashana event that I've been at. So it's a number of different ways, it's not exactly an eye of a needle, Rich men no camels, I mean, I'd like to do it soon. But what's the cutoff point for the Limonless? Well, I think we're at 183 coming up now, so 17 weeks would take us to 300. Considering my initial goal was just to get to 100, it's not bad. And uh, 300, if memory serves, is the number of shin, the Hebrew. Word for tooth, or is it fire? It's a word for tooth, and it's the element of fire, and it's uh, the the last judgment in the tarot. So it's a number to end on, and it's ten times what I did with stormy weather. So I got to thirty with that. So yeah, I think 300 will officially be the last liminalist. That will be sometime in July, I believe. Summertime, anyway. Who knows what kind of shape society will be in by then. So there you have it. We've heard the news. Time to prepare for the end of The Liminalist. Something like 18 more episodes. Next week's Liminalist will be with a listener, reader, who has come through the play wall and out again so that you can... Here, our encounter.